I had to be Shireen, the one that they said, oh, I forgot that you're black sometimes. Like, listen, you're so well-spoken. You're so articulate. You're so, um, like, I didn't realise you had all these qualifications. Oh, my God, you must be, you know, all of that. And you just sit there or I just sat there and accepted it. Can we agree that leadership isn't based on title or position? I have created this podcast to talk to everyday people who lead in extraordinary ways in their everyday lives, both professionally and personally, in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are everyday leaders. Welcome to Everyday Leadership. On today's episode of Everyday Leadership, I have the pleasure of sitting down with a dear friend of mine who has worked in HR for 17 years. But throughout that period, she was invisible. She was quiet of her own admission. But on the 31st of May, something broke inside of her. And since that day, by the time this podcast goes out, she would have released 100 videos talking about inclusion, equity, and making serious change. We delve into her backstory. We talk about the notion of working twice as hard, which we were fed when we were kids, and how that partly led to her being diagnosed with cancer. We talk about why she now refuses to be censored, calling out companies and leaders to drive change forward. It's a value-packed, raw, unfiltered episode Welcome to Everyday Leadership. I have the pleasure this morning of sitting down with uh, Ms. Shireen Daniels. This is going to be interesting. Shireen, how are you doing? Do you know what? I'm grinning here showing teeth like this is going to be video and it's not. It's just audio. Like, I'm really good. How are you, Chopin? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm really looking forward to, to this conversation. Because I wanted to delve behind the scenes of of who Shireen is. In fact, you know what? Let me let me let me let you give an introduction of who you are. Who is Shireen Daniels? Let's let's start with that. Oh, who's Shireen Daniels? Well, firstly, I am a mum of two beautiful children. I have a twelve-year-old and a two-year-old, two girls, and um, partner to what I who I call my Estonian Viking. Um, so. <laughs> That's my, that's, that, that's like my first thing. That's like, anchors. I think I read too many romance novels. You know, I am somebody who grew up on romance novels. So, you know, it's like my not so secret um, hobby. I tell everybody, like, what are you doing on your time off? I'm like, reading romance novels, just <laughs> unplugging, you know. Um, so, yes, that's me. Background is in HR. So I've been in HR for, gosh, 17-ish years, 18 years, 17, 18 years. Um, Work for brands such as Cafe Nero, Carlton Warehouse, Green King, Gala Coral, Hobbs, and um, had a little stint in politics in 2019. And um, yeah, that's like, that's me pretty much. In fact, jumping on that, if I go back to your HR, you started off working with police. Is that correct? No. So I started off working for an international risk management company and um, they basically hired ex-special forces, 
ex-police officers, crime scene investigators to go all over the world, um, basically in conflict areas. So any areas that were civil unrest, political unrest, and they would go in and work with um, non-government organisations, um, US Department of Defence, they go and work with Foreign and Commonwealth Office, oil and gas companies, etc., etc. And then when I started, it was just as the UK and the US went into the Middle East, so the Iraq war is, it's, that was my, like, can you imagine being a HR assistant? Like, I was clueless, but like living the life. Um, so yes, my patch, my HR client group was the Middle East. And ex and lots of ex-military people and ex-police people who, who I am still, a lot of them I'm still in contact with now. And um, yeah, some crazy inspirational individuals that I can count as like if I'm ever stuck anywhere in the world like I've got people that I can call can you find me a way out of here so um yeah 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 so really cool really, that sounds really really good sounds like a, something out of a film to be honest I like that listen can I just tell you one thing there was right there's, there's two I'm not going to call them like well, can I call them famous people? I don't know. But one of them in particular, we had a chief, um, what was he, operations officer. He was only here for six months. He was American. Um, a gentleman by the name of Steve Kappas um, and um, with a K. And if anybody Googled him, he was basically like, he left the CIA to come and do this. So he kind of had a break. So he's been in the CIA for like years and years and years. Left to come in civvy world, to come and be a civilian and go and do um, some like business stuff. So worked for this company that I did, and um, but then left after six months to go back and be the. I think he ended up. Did he end up running the CIA or was he like the deputy of the CIA? Anyway, crazy because I used to when I was studying, I was studying for my second degree, and so he used to walk me part of the way. I was going to London South Bank University, so like, look at this. Like, we can talk about the CIA and London South Bank University in the same in the same breath. But I was studying, so he would walk with me to go meet his wife um, in the evening. Very lovely lady, and um, yeah, he would just give me like, you know inspirational talks that, you know, like when you're 23, you ain't got a sodding clue at 24, you know, so I'm like complaining, going, oh, you know, I've got to go do this. And, you know, he would always be giving me his little nuggets of wisdom. And now that I'm much older, I do kick myself that I wasn't able to take advantage of the people that I was working with. You know, one guy, I saw him in the History Channel for the his role in the Falklands War, and he was like one of the directors there and who I used to sit in his office and go and complain about the world. You know what I mean? Because you're, you're not conscious when you're... <laughs> so I've got all of these great people. You know, one guy who works with, you know, commander of the Special Forces in the New Zealand. Um, I mean, crazy, crazy. And I can call them my friends and, you know, I know them very well. And But, you know, when you're in your 20s, you haven't got a clue, have you? Like now, I'm like, oh, I could have asked them so many things, but then I was just like, yeah, you're learning in my twenties. Yeah, I was learning, and they, they, you know, they were individuals. They, you know, I wasn't conscious of. Now we know, you know, what it is to work in the CIA. Now we know what it is to be 22 years in the military, special forces, to be a marine, to be all of these things. Um, but I was not conscious of that when I was in my 20s. I was just, they were just people who I could go and complain to, sit in their office and go and moan. Do you know what I mean? And they'd be like, Shreed, are you going to go do something? I was like, yeah, I just, I just feel the need to like, you know, why can't I go to Iraq? It's not fair that I can't go to Iraq. Everyone else gets to go. Why can't I, you know, literally, literally, you know. Um, and one of the directors would be like, you know, I've got to go to The Hague. So you carry on talking about, you know, your life. And I'll be like, yeah, I guess. Will you back? Will you back? 
story of my life, basically, showcase story of my life. So there you go. Wow. I'm yeah, from, I know. And from there to the last 17 years, what would you say? How would you describe your HR career? Um, I would say varied, eclectic. So I've done the kind of specialist employee relations, the international stuff. I've also done the generalist. I've been on my own as a standalone HR person. I've managed large teams um, and anything in between, really, you know. So I'd say, yeah, varied and eclectic is probably the, the, the words I would use. And how have you navigated that space as a black woman? Very, very difficult if I'm if I'm honest you know like so there's and the reason why I say it's difficult it's only like when you reflect back isn't it but I think one of the things that I bought into as a you know as a young person thinking about when I left university with my first degree right and I genuinely because you get taught this right I genuinely thought the world was a meritocracy so I genuinely thought um you know and I was that one you know listen when I was at school I had everyone else came out with nine GCSEs I came out with 11 because I did two the year before it an adults college up the road that my you know my 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 head teacher said no to and I was like well I'm doing it anyway my mom's like well she's gonna go and do it so I came so already if you can imagine from 16 I was already overqualified than every 16-year-old, pretty much, you know, because, you know, everyone's coming out with nine and I've got 11 and, you know, and so on and so forth. And I wanted to go and get my A-levels and got a degree. Um, so I definitely bought into this idea of if you work hard enough, get your head down, work hard enough, like excel, then you will get the opportunities to go and do amazing things and, and, and. And then as I navigated my career and realised, you know, I had, all these qualifications, one degree, then two degrees, right? Then certificates, then experience in X, Y, and Z. And every time I was going into some of these organizations, it was like there was like a block that you could never really touch, but it was kind of there, if that makes sense. It just felt like for a long time, I was like in this space of, like I can see like I should be over there doing this. It's not. It's not always about, climbing up the tree it's just about wanting to do stuff that's different and interesting and always to be told like you know you're not ready yet just you know wait your time and then I see somebody with like no qualifications or half the qualifications that I have like 70% less of the experience that I have and they're like way over there and I'm going but you're telling me that I've got to wait my t- I've got to wait you know, carry on doing good work, carry on, you know, because, and and also in that space of like, nobody was ever criticizing the work that I was doing. So it wasn't as if, you know, you know, like some people think they're like rock stars, but you, they really ain't, do you know what I mean? Because they're in the wrong job. I would say that it's not because people are rubbish, it's just because they're in the wrong job. And, you know, they think like they're the best thing since sliced bread. Like I was told I was the best thing since sliced bread, not in every single business, but a lot of this time. So I couldn't understand why. So when you're kind of going through that and I'm thinking, right, okay. And then you're the only black person in a business and in London. How does that even happen? How, how can anybody be the only black person? In, but this, this was my, you know, this was my career. And then you go into bigger companies where you can see like two black people. Do you know what I mean? And like once the cleaner 
and one's a security guard. So you're like, hey, what's up? And you, you know, you you like talking, you know, every day's chatting, chatting, and you're going in and you're just thinking, shit, how does in London, how does that happen? Um, and yeah, it was just this whole thing about me thinking to myself, well, do you know what? To get ahead is not about me working hard anymore. What it is about is me assimilating. So what I've got to do is I've got to bring less of the Shireen. You know, I've got to bring less of my culture because I think my my culture is the Caribbean. You know, so I've got British, but very steep. So I, 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 because I grew up in a very all white town. So my, I had one shade when I was growing up with the exception of my family. And that was white. So I grew up in Crewe in the northwest in Cheshire. You know, so that's where I grew up. So can you imagine coming to London? Well, I went to university and I was like, oh, my God, look at all these all these people from all these different countries and it doesn't even matter that like I'm black. It makes no difference because like everybody's so different, right? And then you think, I don't want, I don't want my hometown of Crewe where there's like three black families and they all think we're related just because we're black. Do you know what I mean? I, I like don't want that. So let me go to London because I hear, I heard on the grapevine that London is one of the most multicultural cities in the entire planet. So let me come down to London because then I can go and work in an environment where I'm not the only black person. And then you come to London with my little, you know, my degree and my little A-levels and my GCSEs and all the rest of it, thinking I'm the best thing since, you know, chocolate now, because I've moved on from sliced bread, it's now chocolate. And there's no black people. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, what, what, what's going on? So you end up thinking to yourself, okay, maybe I'm one of the special few. Because maybe nobody else is good enough, but that don't make no sense. And then you realise... It's not because nobody else is good enough, but there's only space for one of you. And even when you're in, you can't be, I can't be the Shireen Daniels that was like dropping it like it was hot at university. You know, when all the, you know, the, cult, the culture of the Caribbean is loud, it's noisy, we're like extra, do you know what I mean? It's just like, you know, where I can't play dominoes, but it's one of them. You know, when you fling down the dominoes on the table and everything, the Guinness is falling over, you know, you know the ones, you know the ones, you know, it's, that's like, and, you know, and I, gravitated very much to like what I would call the black Caribbean culture and dare I say even the West African culture because a lot of my friends were Nigerian and Ghanaian so between the two do you know what I mean like these listen I was like and I was loving it because I didn't have that when I was growing up do you know what I mean I had to go to London for my school holiday like one two two weeks go down Brixton and like just soak up the blackness to go and you know soak it in back in my skin and then go back to crew and and you know be Shireen that's into R&B music and whatever else it is and you, you know all of that jazz so you know coming into the world of work and feeling like I had to lose that you know to me so what was happening is I'd go into work and I was I was it's not going to surprise you but I was in the club I spent most of my 20s a good part of my 30s in the club you know that's me me and music in case people don't know yeah Shireen's a part time DJ <laughs> Right. I know, I know, but you know what? I do like to drop a track. <laughs> so listen, me and music are like, you know what I mean? We we go together. We go together. So, you know, so what so that was my way of immersing myself in the culture. You know, as I was in reggae clubs, I was in bashment clubs, I was in R and B clubs, hip hop clubs. That's that that was my way of outlet. Of outlet because I still wanted to feel connected to being black. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And, 
you know, television, BET was then out in the 2000s. So, you know, but that was American, you know, in the 90s, we had the real McCoy, which has come back now, I've noticed. Yep. And so that was the thing. And now when you look back, it was like, it's so crazy accurate, like nothing has changed. So if anyone hasn't seen the real McCoy, like, listen, go back and find it. What's it? Who's showing it? BBC. It's on BBC. Yeah, BBC. It's on BBC. BBC On Demand. It is the lick. It is the lick. It's still the lick. It's still the lick. And um, so... I was doing that to compensate for the fact that when I stepped over the foyer into the businesses, Shope, I had to leave that. I had to be Shireen, the one that they said, oh, I forgot that you're black sometimes. Like, listen, you're so well-spoken. You're so articulate. You're so, um, like, I didn't realise you had all these qualifications. Oh, my God, you must be, you know, all of that. And you just sit there or I just sat there and accepted it. Because I, because I didn't even want to start, because every time you start having the conversation, nobody ain't want to really have the conversation, right? So you just end up going, thanks, you know, thanks. And then, oh my God, you know, I worked in publishing when I started going dreadlocks. They nearly passed out. Shree, what's this with your hair? What is, what's this? What's this? You know, what are you touching, touching your hair? Oh, oh. You know, these, uh, you know, and all that jazz. It was just, it was, it was, it was, it was crazy. So that's why I always think to myself, do you know what? Like there was moments, don't get me wrong. Like, it's not like it was all like doom and gloom. It wasn't, but there was definitely that thing of like the twilight zone. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, there's a, there's a world in which you live in when you're at work, when you're black and there's a world that's not you. And you, you, you you're very conscious of crossing over the threshold and then crossing back over the threshold when you want to go home, go and hang out with your friends, go and do, go and do. Um, and I think that always colored my experiences and made me probably not particularly happy, like deep down, never really happy. Do you know what I mean? You find it draining as well both emotionally and physically having to get into the door and change into a different shireen oh my goodness listen switching and all that it's exhausting but also it's exhausting because you put yourself under so much pressure because don't forget when you buy into the meritocracy idea that you know you work hard and you you get success you get this 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 when it doesn't happen what do you say you say i'm not good enough so what do you do if you work even harder? And, you know, I had my first daughter at 26 and my oldest daughter at 26. And um, for a while, I was for a long time, I was like a single parent. So I was still trying to get on and be a single parent. So I was rushing around and I was doing a field role. So I lived in Kent, my patch with Birmingham. And I had a very, very young daughter. So I was like, do, but I had to do it because I wanted to prove a point because otherwise I would not get the opportunity. So when they said, look, this is the only role that we have to go and move you from here to here. And I took it even though I knew. And Chopin, guess what? Like after that was when I was at Carphone Warehouse and I left Carphone Warehouse to start another job, started another job at Gala Coral. Um, and two months later, I was diagnosed with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. Wow. Do you know what I mean? So that's probably part part of my carefreeness now is because when you've been that ill, so all my dreadlocks fell out. So I had very long locks. All of that fell out. So I did that whole chemotherapy thing, did the whole, you know, they got to talk about funerals and got to get your will sorted out because, you know, stage five is terminal. And so I had tumour on my chest. I was, you know, um, so that it was like, it was crazy in terms of I'm thinking to myself, I slogged my guts out for a big portion of my, pretty much since I was 14 years old, you know, my first GCSEs I did, I was 14, sat the exam at 15. And here I am, sat in my hospital in Kent, 
being injected with like high grade chemotherapy, you know, in sessions, being there from like six to 10 hours every two weeks. It was like, you know what I mean? Like I've done all of this to end up here, you know, with my daughter who was then four. And then I'm thinking, but there's still so much more I want to do. But yet part of me wonders, you know, I probably created my sickness and I don't mean from a like, a, you know, when people go, oh my God, where is me? I don't mean from that. I just mean the pressure and everything that I was living under, because at some point the pressure that you feel will internalize itself as physical distress. Yes. I think the stats are, I think it's 55 or 60% of the physical illness you see in hospitals come from the stress from the mental. Psychological. Yeah, that's all it flows from. So, Absolutely. Yeah, I was one of those, you know, I'm sure people can go, well, you know, it's this, it's this, it's this. I'm a firm believer. I would say to people like, you know, I probably created my own illness, you know, the, the cancer, because it was it had been ticking around for a long time. It just, you know, but I never noticed it. And probably there were symptoms and I never noticed it until it got really bad. Like, so the, the first three, you know, the... The, from December of 2011 to April 2012, I knew I was dying. Like, I knew it. I, I literally, I remember going on holiday with a friend of mine before I got diagnosed, and I just said to her, look, and she was like, you've got, because I wasn't sleeping, but I was tired, because that's one of the, you know, because you're itching, Hodgkin's lymphoma, cancer of the blood, it's like, it's a le- leukemia family. So all it means is your body can't get rid of waste products, so it's just pumping, repumping all of it in your blood and it's just going around and basically just destroying your system you know and I remember saying to her like I feel like if I do eventually fall asleep I'm not going to wake up because I could feel my body shutting down I could so by the time I got diagnosed you know and in the longly NHS fabulous but long line of you know it's this it's this it's this way and I remember going to see the doctor and I had the lump come up on the neck that's one of the things of the the tumour um, but the problem is every time I used to go and see a doctor the lump disappeared because that's the problem it comes and it goes so you know you'd, you'd wait ages for an appointment you'd go and I'd be like there was this lump and it's like well it's not there now I'm like yeah but it was there you know so you go through all of that and when I went to see her and she was like okay and she had to help me take off my jumper because I was just tired and gray, like my face looked grey and um, and she said you know when's your CT scan I was like oh I've got, I've got this letter. They told me I've got to do this first and I've got to make an appointment. She's like, no, 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 go and have your CT scan. So I'm there like shivering and, you know, all the rest of it and had the scan and she called me into room and she was like, look, you've got an hour to go home, go and get your stuff. Your local hospital are expecting you. She said, I'm really sorry to tell you, but you've got cancer. And to be honest, Chopin, I was so bloody relieved that I knew what was wrong because for all that time, I thought I was making it up psychosomatic you know or because the doctors couldn't tell me what was wrong they was telling me it's this I spent a fortune on going private I spent a fortune on over-the-counter medicine a fortune on sleeping tablets to sleep you know nothing worked you know got through watching prison break so pretty much binge watched all the series of prison break because I wasn't sleeping and so when she said like you've got cancer I was a bit like well, at least that was that. So, you know, drove home, stopped at McDonald's on the way because I thought if I'm going to be in hospital, I better make sure that I'm eating good food. Like, I kid you not. So, so you went to McDonald's. <laughs> let, let me tell you what I had. I had a quarter pounder with cheese, extra cheese, with, and I made them put the salad in because, you know, you can, like, adjust the burger. So I put the salad yeah. in and then Big Mac sauce, large strawberry milkshake and large fries. So I was there in the in the car park and I remember calling my mum and my mum was like, where are you? And I was like, 
I'm in McDonald's. She's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm having, a, I'm having McDonald's, mum, because I've got to go to hospital. She's like, well, what's the matter with you? I was like, mum, I'm going to come You know, but she's like, why are you at McDonald's? Because I said, the hospital food is probably sh-, so I've got to eat this first, so I've got it in my sister, you know. And um, yeah, there we go. So that was, you know, so I do think it was, it was internalised stress, you know, and, you know, like, listen, when you're living in a space where you always don't feel, you never 100% feel welcome, you're always on edge. You're all you. You can never, you can never truly relax. And there comes a point if you're at work. Look how many hours we're at work. Eight, nine hours a day. You're leaving home. You're commuting. That's a lot of time to be wearing a skin that's not really yours. It's a long time. It's a long time, and that's why you see people. You know, I believe. You know, I'm pushing 40 now but people in their 50s and 60s 70s even who have dealt with racism from way back when but back in those days Chopin, you couldn't turn on the television and see all the people talking about it you couldn't open the newspaper and see all the people talking about it you couldn't whatsapp your friends and go this is some bull like am i the only you know and so they were living in a space of they were again internalizing their treatment thinking it must be me because I don't see anybody else having the same experience that I have. And that for me, like, that's the bit, like, if you sit in that for a minute, I just, like, it, it makes me really upset to think about how, because already it's lonely, even with social media, even with all of this stuff. But can you imagine, like, you just, you know, you haven't got, you know, okay, they had phones, but not like mobile phones like we had, you know, back in that day. And you're just, like, sitting, dealing with all the bull how you're treated in society, people openly being racist towards you you're being denied opportunity in your workplace and you've got nowhere to go and you're just thinking it's me because I'm not good enough so you work even harder it's like it's, it's crazy when you think about it like now we've got the benefit of you know reaching out that's like we're talking you know we're all connecting right and we can all go in it's and you know we're all trying to make differences in the way that we can but that's because technology has allowed us to connect together but when you don't have that what if you're living in a part of the world that doesn't have access to technology and this is what you're dealing with day in and day out? It's mad, it's mad isn't it? It's mad and it's crazy. And I guess I'm thinking about you, your journey, navigating that world, that space, going through cancer. But would it be fair to say that up until the 31st of, of May, you were still subdued a bit, you were still a bit quiet. And then on that day, you, you snapped. Yeah, basically, I would say, yeah, I mean, I'd still, like, because there's always been, like, a, a quite a, a fiery nature to my personality. There's, a, like, a, I'm, I'm a contrast, so people sometimes call me moody, because on one hand, you can see me like, yeah, 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 I'm a, and on the other hand, I'm super quiet, I need energy, I need to just, you know, because I'm not really, I'm not really an in- extrovert. People think I'm extroverted, I'm not, I'm just... I sometimes want my energy from people and I sometimes want silence. So I like to sit between both ends. But very conscious of being, particularly when you start your own business, I started my own business in August last, um, autumn last year. Very conscious of being a black woman operating in predominantly white spaces. Do you know what I mean? So listen, I would go into conferences. I remember going to one particular um it was an investment conference and there's like two other black people one person was on the stage and basically getting ignored i've called i called my friends leanne afterwards i was practically in tears a grown woman in tears because i've never felt that level of hostility in a long time that was before any of this so this is before we were even you know this is like november last year 
you know, so we, we're not talking about stuff like we're talking about it now. And it was just nobody at all wanted to, like questioning why I was there. And all that about, you know, do I know where the cloakroom is? Can I tell somebody where they talk? All of that stuff that, you know, people think doesn't exist. Like I was living in, living, living it. Not even what, but what was November? Like not even seven months ago, whatever, eight months ago. Um, yeah, not long ago at all. And I was just, and I remember saying to um, Leanne, and I was saying to my friend, like, is this what we've, is this the world we're still living in? Not even thinking that what was going to happen in 2020, never mind coronavirus and everything else, but like, are we still in this space where as black people, there are spaces that we are just not allowed in still? And why do you think that was the case? Obviously with the work that you do, you dealt a lot with leaders. So would you say that they were a main factor in creating that culture and that environment around not opening the door or not making people feel, black people feel welcome? I think it's now, like if you asked me that question like last year, I'd probably be like, well, you know, yeah, it all starts from the top and, you know, which it does. It does from an internal perspective. But like in this journey, what you realise is social conditioning has affected everybody, not just black people. So actually, when you realise in society, the, the default is what I call the whitewashed of everything. So it's normal to see 95% white faces everywhere and 2% black faces. So therefore, when you're stepping into work, why would you question that there's no more black people when the society around you shows black people in this light? Listen, if we're not, listen, in the media, if we're not being um, shown as like starving kids in Africa, do you know what I mean? So everyone thinks like Africa's just this poverty stricken, you know, everyone's living in mud huts all over the place. Do you know what I mean? So when you, I, I remember hearing, oh my God, I remember hearing conversations of director being shocked. Where did he go? Where did he go? Like Kenya or somewhere, like safari, and must have went via somewhere else. He couldn't believe it. He was like, I didn't even realise, like, <laughs> I didn't even realise there were places like this in Africa. And I went, what? Where there's no starving kit? Like, come on now. But but he was genuinely shocked, right? But again, they see us as other. So it's all, you know, I always keep saying this, it's all right to see us, you know, on the basketball court. It's all right to see us and, you know, dip and do it to our music and, 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 and. But actually when it comes to fundamentally thinking about what does white people, what do white people have that black people don't? For many white people, it was just normal. And they never thought that it was just a thing. They, Some people genuinely thought, and I kid you not, there are some white people who genuinely thought the reason why black people are not in levels of seniority, that, that we're not managers, that we're not line managers, that we're not heads of department, is because we're not good enough. And they don't mean that in a, like, that what that they're in their minds, because in their minds, because they see how there's plenty of shit white people in positions of leadership. So don't forget you got that going on. Right. And then they're going, well, so if I know somebody ain't even any good, the fact that you are not there means you've got to be even worse than that person. So you're not good enough because it, they've never been conscious and never understood the structural things that underpin why we are where we are and, and why as people we don't have the same opportunities. So in their mind, because they also buy into the meritocracy idea because we were all went to the same bloody school. We all went to the same school. But then in an age of globalisation, 
And in an age where your customer demographic, and I want to use your favorite company, Nike. Yeah. <laughs> demographic that it says, 76 of the demographic was all, was all black. Surely you can look around your organization and be like, actually, we serve one predominant culture, but yet it's not represented here. We have the slogans, we have the, the adverts, we have all of that. But yet, looking around us, how can we actually say we are a culture that celebrates inclusion when it's not around us? A lot of this, there's a lot of companies that have had awards for diversity and inclusion over the years, and they've been clapped and celebrated, yet their organizations have not, their structures are all white. So how is, how is that possible? Because fundamentally, they can make money regardless. Because as black people or brown people, we're still all right giving our money to companies that don't reflect us, providing we like the trainers, the clothes, the shorts, the T-shirt. And I've been that I'm, I'm been that one. I'm looking at my, my all my 50,000 pairs of Nike trainers, my high-top Air Forces, limited edition all over the place, crying because I feel like the brand has so let me down and I can, you know, I can't consciously go and buy another pair of trainers or another Nike, you know, I'll wear what I have, but I'm not buying any more. You know, and that's that whole thing about, And think about, put yourself in the minds of the senior leadership teams. Okay, well, we don't reflect the the diversity of the customer base that we serve. But guess what? We're still making money anyway. So if you're still making money, the millions and the billions are still coming in. If you can still go and do your black and white advert and pick a black person and a social cause and everyone tells you you're the best thing since sliced bread, so then your share price goes up and people buy more of your products, even though you haven't got black people in senior levels, like why change? So true. Which is the challenge with diversity and inclusion, because a lot of companies are saying, but we're successful anyway. We haven't got no black or brown people. We haven't got no differently Mm. able people. We don't have anybody of the LGBTQ community and we're still making money. So you need to convince me even more that I can make money by getting in Shireen and Chopin. And then off we go, building the business case and talking about pounds, shillings and pence. And I'm going, what is that not slavery? Because slavery was built on an economic argument that you can make more money with free labor and 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 this is this is this is how much your business can grow mr mr or mrs farmer this is how much your you know because look you don't have to pay them you know so if the stats are showing that diversity for example include increases your company profits by what is it 35 percent should we have to actually make that argument based on what we just said right now or should it just be a moral case I don't think it should like I think the business case that I prefer to be seeing is around the fact that any in the as you said in the age of globalization in the in the age of multiculturalism you know the removal of borders the fact that we can do business pretty much with whoever irrespective of us not even speaking the same language that is the that is the makeup of the world so if you hang on to a predominantly white leadership lens, you know, within your business or your workforce is predominantly white, even though you're going to, you're going and doing all these different things, then I would say, well, you're going to be a dinosaur because it's not sustainable because people don't even, and this is the thing, it's not sustainable. It doesn't look good. And we're getting to this space now that even some of these companies that are not doing anything in this moment now, in two, three years time, if their businesses still look how it does and they still operate, so this is not just about the optics, it's not just about getting a few like me and you pointing us to a board and everybody going, well done, because you know there's a lot of that going on. 
You know, it's not just about that. It's about, you know, looking at the structural things and how you can make it fairer for everybody. Because I always say to businesses, if you fix this for black people, you've solved all your other challenges. I promise you, because it's the same principles. The structural elements, you know, it's the same principles. And then, so if they don't do that, and they still look like they do now, people are going to think, well, I'm not being funny, but you must be a racist company because that looks like you're being deliberate now because you know better. Ignorance in 2020 has died as far as I'm concerned. So when you know better, have you done better? And if you haven't done better, it's because you're making a point. So your point is, are you a white supremacist company, Mr. or Mrs. CEO? Because like you ain't changed. And 2020 was the year, you know, that was the civil rights movement as far as I'm concerned, you know, with this generation. And you're still looking the same. Why are you still looking the same when everybody else has now done things and committed to being anti-racist and put some things in place and you haven't done it? So if you haven't done it, what does that say about why you haven't done it? That is very true. And it'll be me. I'll be the one in a couple of years' time going, <clears throat> why to tell you? So now, as far as I'm concerned... I don't think you have to be because when you look at the what's been behind this drive, especially the panda movement... It's been the millennial generation and the Generation Z generation who are going to be the dominant workforce in the next five years. So they want that. Even before this happened, before this period happened, they, they were asking for that change anyway. And now going forward, they're demanding it. Yeah. And it has to happen, like I said, if you don't, your company will not exist. Because, yeah, because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make, make it doesn't, sense. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't, and that's the thing. And you know, and to to be fair, you know, I do like some people have said. You know, some of these young people they're just dumping on it, and they they don't necessarily understand the 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 bits that sit underneath it. But to some extent, you know what? Like, I don't wrong that because at least they're they're demanding and they're drawing attention to the issue. That's for like other people who know experts, you know, people are interested to go, we can go underneath the surface and go, right, okay, this is the change you need to affect. But fundamentally, change does not happen without pressure. Change does not happen unless people come together and say enough is enough. Change does not happen unless, you know, even, even with us as black people, you know, whether we start supporting, stop drawing up the bridge, start deslaving our own minds decolonizing our own minds around what it is to be black and what it is to be successful. Stop apologizing for wanting to see other black people win. Don't feel like we don't have to share our spaces. We don't have to provide our opportunities because we've got to do that concurrently with other people who are pioneers, white, brown, other, who are also for our movement and have a different sphere of influence than we have. But we've always been at the bottom. We've always been the ones that have not got the memo. You know, and we're, and we're living in a world where white people will in the same breath say, well, if you black people were more like the Chinese or more like the Indians, because they do for themselves and they support, they support. And then when we do, it's like, oh, my God, like we're trying to take over the world. Do you know what I mean? And so so therefore and we react to that because we don't want to be seen like There's so many black people I talk to who say one of the things that they have gone through now is this whole idea of not feeling like it's wrong to go and help another black person publicly that will do it behind closed doors because they don't want to be they don't want to be um attacked for pre um, showing preferential treatment to another black person and i go yeah but white people have been doing that from day white people have been doing that. and that's but that is the point about mental slavery that is the consequence of being socially conditioned 
to say that, you know what, because it's scarcity, because there's not enough opportunities, only one of us can win. So if I see you here, Shopei doing this, I'm going to think to myself, I'm not going to do it because like, there's no way they're going to allow me and Shopei to do that. Nobody's told us that. We haven't pushed up against it to see if that's true or not. But we've connected all of our experiences of operating in a world that's predominantly white here in the UK and in, in the US and other countries, it's not quite the same thing, but, you know, and we, we so we've internalised that. So that governs our behaviour, just like Pavlo's dog. Do you know what I mean? But instead of the bell ringing, for us it's seeing white people. And that's what adjusts our behaviour automatically. And so that's what, the, you know, everybody else is, you know, is talking about, you know. And I'm seeing people, you know, on LinkedIn changing their names back to their birth names. Before LinkedIn did the pronunciation thing, they're changing their names back to their birth names because they changed their names to Sam, Joe, you know, all of this because they knew they couldn't get the opportunities by having their God-given names that their parents gave them, that their parents were proud and with love and all, particularly if it's a cult that is a name of cultural significance. My name is Persian. My mum just liked it because the nurse had the same name. She's like, oh, I like this name. You know, so when I go to the Middle East and they start talking to me in Arabic and I'm like, sorry, <laughs> I know like three words, you know, and they, <laughs> and they go, but your name? I was like, I know, I know. Um, you know, so you, you miss that. And I can't imagine having one name that my parents gave me or that my mom or my dad or whoever gave me and then having to adopt a white sounding name just to feel accepted. If that does not erode our self-esteem and our self-image from day one, tell me what else can. Imagine you've got kids, like we've got kids. I can't imagine, you know, my two daughters named Tiana and Kalexa, right? I can't imagine giving Tia a name like Sarah because I think it's going to give her better job opportunities. That would just break me. But so many people have either named their kids deliberately a white sounding name to make sure that they can get a job. Or if they've come from another um, culture, they've renamed them. Or the individuals, as they've grown older, they've changed their names because they've realised they get treated differently when people see, you know, I can't even give an example, but, you know, and, and, what does that do to your self-esteem about who you are? Does that make you feel proud to stand up shoulders back and go and fight the world? Or does it make you feel like you've got to apologise for your blackness right down to the very essence of who you are, which is our names? Yeah, and it starts from, it starts from a young age. I remember going through that same battle at school. And my name, obviously, is Chopin. Agbalusa is the first name. Mm. So I was the first name on the teacher's roster. Mm. And every time she got up to call my name, I used to put my hand in my face because I like, this is going to be a struggle. Mm. And for high, for a number of years, I was like, I wanted to change my name. I wanted mm. to change my name. And I had to get to that point. I think I was like 15 and 16 when something really shifted. Mm. I'm like, this is who I am. I'm just going to own it. I'm going to run with it. I'm just going to be myself. I knew, and it's been a struggle, but she's trying to get jobs and all that and navigating that Yeah, because people are a bit like, uh, 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 rather than just, and the thing is, rather than just say, like, how do you pronounce your name? Like, so, and I don't, when people say, like, have I pronounced your name right? I don't care. Like, for me, I don't mind. I go, no, you know, it's Shireen or, you know, whatever else it is. And, you know, because I'll get like Sherry and, you know, blah, 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 or, you know, all these different, and, and my name is not that difficult. Like, it's, it's not that difficult. But then when I see, you know, other other people having to shorten their names or give it a twist in inverted commas. I just think to myself, but this is what it is to live in this society um, and making all of these concessions and assimilating and, 
you know, feeling like we can't support one another because we can't even support ourselves. We cannot even support ourselves in this. So as a mother of two kids, how has that affected your your approach in terms of, so you grew up with a working twice as hard notion. Have you applied the same same principles to them? Have you taught them something different? And how have you dealt with race at home? And like you said, your white strong Estonian partner you have at home as well. So you're navigating a couple of different spaces. So how have you handled that? To be honest, like up until like a few months ago, um, blissful ignorance, if I'm really honest, you know what I mean? So I was like, you know, telling my oldest daughter, like, don't be, don't be messing about. And, you know, and it's really funny, actually, because I think maybe I did. Yes, I did. So I had, she's 12, right? So she, and she's a young 12. So when everybody else was like 12 in September, she's a May baby. So she's like a young, always young in a year. And when she was going to the shopping centre, and the talk that I have with her is not dissimilar to the talk that you would give your black son when they get of age, right? So the talk I had with her is not about the police per se, but I said, listen, if your friends are mucking about in the shop, you move away. If your friends are potentially shoplifting or doing any of that stuff, and I was like, she's like, oh, no. I said, listen, I've been there, done that, so don't even, don't even. I've been sat in the police station at 14 years old. Do you know what I mean? I, that's, that's been, so when I tell you I've lived, I have lived. Do you know what I mean? So I've been there. So you can't come tell me, no young person can come and tell me anything. I've been there, I've done that. She's like, okay, okay. Because I said, and what I said to her, I said, Tia, what you got to understand is, when they look and see what's going on, you as the black person, they will come to you straight away. So the police will come and they will take you to the police station and they will ask you the questions in the police station when they're quite happy to ask your white friends in the shop. That's what I keep drumming into her. When If there's anything going on, you step away. Because I said they will come for you and assume it is you first. Like, can you imagine having to have that conversation at 12? I mean, my mum never had that conversation, but I, I've lived, I've lived different. My mum's very good. She was, you know, she was a good child. She was a good teenager. She was a good, not me. So, I mean, I, I was that one, you know, very smart, too smart for my own sodding good, you know. And so I've got to have that conversation with her because my oldest daughter is a little bit like me in that sense, you know, thinks think she knows what's what, you know. And, she, you know, she's, and, and when she sees, like, I can see her looking because I said, T, this is no joke thing. I said, I'm not even joking. This is not a joke. So when your friends are jumping up and down joking, I said, you just, if they're messing about, you leave the shop. I said, this is the only, if, unless you get this message, you're not going nowhere. Do you know what I mean? And that's the thing I've got to drum into her, you know. And so, you know, that's the reality. Um, the conversations that I've had with my partner have been, like, super challenging. Like, we've argued over some of the stuff that I'm talking about. Because he, he even him, you know, and, he, and, you, and what I say to people is a slight, when you're going out with an Eastern European, you know, my partner's, you know, he is Eastern European, you know, they had to deal with um, communism, Russia. So they didn't get independence. I can't remember when they got independence, actually, like 1992, something like early 90s. And so he's, so you can imagine like the, the conversations about history in our house are just like fascinating because, you know, him growing up, his dad passed his driving license and took him 20 years to get a car because of communism and you know my partner is still old enough in the sense where everybody had to wear the same clothes so you all had to wear the same jeans from the same factory to not you know so when you break 
you know what I mean? So and so he's going, yeah. <clears throat> he's going, yeah, but we had this, this, this. And I'm like, that ain't slavery. And he's like, no, but you didn't have to, you know. <laughs> so we get into this whole, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to. And I was like, but also for him, and he was thinking, and he said, you know what? I genuinely thought racism wasn't a big, wasn't a big issue anymore, you know? And I said, and I said to him, yeah, but how can you say that? Because like, he forgets he's got like selective memory. When Brexit was going on, you know, and like people would shout out the window when he and I would walk down the street and tell us basically that we're both because we both need to go back to where we came from. Do you know what I mean? You know, he just and I said, how's it? He said, oh yeah, but that's like exceptions. And he was not cognizant of structural racism, of systemic racism. Didn't understand the context of history. Didn't understand. So we've been, you know, we've been watching all sorts. I mean, it blew his mind the fact that you know it was a black man who created the Russian language. I don't even think like Russians even know that. I didn't know that. But he was like, no. So like, yeah, listen. I did not know that. Cool. Yes, yes, Alexander. So. We were getting to this part of the documentary. He was like, stop getting out of the laptop. He was like, oh, my God. You know, this whole thing about, you know, is it mocked up being black and, you know, like, you know, all, all the sorts of stuff that we now know, that I now know, that I didn't know. But he's learning it the same way. So I'm learning to rebase my foundation as a black person and identity. And I'm telling him, you have to learn because your daughter is half black. And what I've said to him is that if you are not having, if you can't understand and you and she she can't see you, and Tia, who's her her dad is Jamaican. But I said, if they can't see you engaging in this conversation on understanding, when they are treated differently, when they experience racism, prejudice, and discrimination, they will not talk to you, they will talk to me because they will feel like you do not understand. So when I told him that, he shut up then. So then he's like, right, so what's this What's this hidden colours are we watching? What is it? Are we watching 13th? Which one are we watching today? I was like, right. And I said, now that I've got you started on that, there's also this book I want you to read called Brainwashed. So you're going to go and read that because you are guilty of applying some of the stuff. So like we, yeah, just because he's married to a black woman, like, listen, his shit is not on point. So I've got this, <laughs> I'm like this to video and then turning to him and going, right, did you pay attention? You know, um, because it's all work. And I said to him, you cannot be, forget the fact that he's my partner. But, you know, I said, this is what I say to white people. And I said, you, you cannot not do work in this space. And the work starts with yourself. And now he's learning and some of the outrageous things that he used to say, because he thought he can get away with it because he's Estonian. I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> no, doesn't work like that, my love. So, yeah, that's, you know, but it's, this is this world we're living in, right? So how would, I want to go back to that working twice as hard thing that we all have embedded into us. How do we change that with with our kids to avoid, like, for example, what you went through and having to work never than twice, but three times, four times, five times and still not getting anywhere? How do you get to change their attitudes and their approach to how they operate and navigate in that space of work? What I'd say in, like, the in the nicest way possible, don't rely on the man. You know, we have to, and I would say this, and this, what's really interesting is this is not a black thing per se, because I would say this to anybody in that sometimes we have to wean ourselves off being dependent on other people to influence the lives that we want to lead. Meaning, 
it's not easy. Nothing is easy. Getting a job and navigating corporate space is not easy. You know, setting up your own business is not easy. But I think we don't realise our own power, our own creativity, our own ingenuity, our own, you know, the way that we can create something out of nothing. And if you and what I say to people is you imagine the hard work that you put in to navigate a space that doesn't want you fundamentally. It's not going to value you, it's not going to give you, you know, what you're after and apply that to setting up your own something, being amazing at something that you want to be amazing at because not because you're doing it to be accepted by a predominantly white society, but because it matters to you. And build your life, your cause, your work around that. So like my daughter, she gets to see all this stuff. She's been like indoctrinated in what I'm doing. So she's already worked, you know, she's she's already started up two businesses with my, yeah, with my help. She can build her own website. She's built her own Shopify website. She's, you know, got business pages on Instagram. So she like she's just like, bah, 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 bah. mom, can you buy me a website domain? I'm like, no. Because until I can see some money being made off this other one, what's going on with this lip gloss business, Tia? What is going on with this lip gloss? Because I put money on the table. Like, where is it? <laughs> you know? So she's already, so it's not, so, you know, she's good at school and, you know, she's got leadership capabilities and all the rest of it. But I'm trying to show her there are things that you can create for yourself. You don't, We don't have to wait for linear things. I would love to see kids playing, being entrepreneurs, being creative like now, as well as, getting their education. You don't have to wait until you get to this point before you then go and do this. And that's what I'm teaching her. You know, my partner's like, what happened to this business? I was like, don't worry about it. Just, you know, she's, she's, she's learning. She's happy. She's learning. She's, you know, they're doing contracts on email. You know, they're knocking people out of the business, putting people back in. She's like saying, hang on a minute. You guys don't get a say because I'm the one that's building the bit. And I'll go, right, there you go. So you got a bit, you know, so we're doing all of this kind of life business but it's not about business it's about doing for yourself doing for yourself she's not waiting for anybody's permission she'd already started the website but she was like mom i need your credit card because apparently i can't <laughs> i can't connect it to paypal because i'm too young i'm like right what have you done you know there's a good website that's better than me not now but you know and so, you know and i was just thinking that's what you've got to support so you've got to show you've got to show particularly these young people particularly black young people who were thinking you know, because some of them, and I talk to some young people, I'm looking for an intern. And when, if I told you about some what they've written in their, you know, spit about why they should pick them, they're now feeling like they've got no chance because not every business is committed to being anti-racist. So, and I don't want them to have that defeatist and thinking the odds are stacked up against them, so they stop trying. Because if we're not careful, they will go in thinking like the fact that people are still arguing, the fact that there are some white people that don't want us to be equal, the, this, the, this, the, this, there is no point. And that's what we've got to work really hard on to make sure there is a point. We'll just show them a different way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that is so true. And speaking of a different way, how are you looking after yourself from a mind, body, spirit perspective? Because for the last, what, 62 days, you've released videos, you've been on this consistently. I can imagine it It takes its toll on you, just like we talked about wearing that mask takes its toll on you in that environment. This can also take its toll on you. So how have you looked after you? Well, I think the first thing that I've said to anybody who goes, oh my God, how did you do that? And I said, listen, what I'm doing right now is a damn sight easier than spending 17 years pretending to be somebody that you're not. Do you know what I mean? So like, 
honestly, like I can talk to video about all of this all day, all day, because I'm doing it in the way that I want to, saying what I want to say. So, to the, for the so, and I get a different pressure because now I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, one day I'm going to take it too far. I'm just going to cuss out everybody, and they're going to be like, oh, she's taking it too far, but I don't care, you know. But um, so that's point one. The other thing is. If I'm going to do this, I've got to do it the way that I need to do it. So that's why I'm taking off two weeks, you know, that I'm taking off the last two weeks in August. I'm going completely off the grid. I'm not engaging with anything. I'm not even reading the news. I'm not, you know, WhatsApp. I'm deleting everything off my phone. I'm just going to go off the grid and just read romance novels, watch stuff on Netflix. There's all sorts of stuff coming back. Do you know what I mean? And go in and just be and potter about with my youngest daughter before she thinks that my oldest daughter is her mother, you know, and just, you know, just, just like re- just reconnect and, not have to think, oh God, you know what's going on? I've got to just, and just, you know, just be, but also be quite unapologetic in that, you know, you've seen some of my videos show, but if I ain't in the mood, I ain't in the mood. But I still show yeah. up. So I don't censor that. Because again, anytime that you try and pretend that you're feeling differently to how you are, that's pressure. And so mentally, what I do is I give myself pluses and minuses. So if I feel like I've tried too hard to show that I'm bright and breezy, that's a minus when I don't feel like it. Do you know what I mean? If I'm not feeling like 100% and you can see because I'm like slouched, normally because you see because I'm like this, in my, in, you know, you, <laughs> nobody can see, but I'm like really slouched. And you just see like the top of my, look, your body shot is like literally my shoulders because I'm slouched so far in my seat when I'm recording because I just ain't feeling it or somebody's annoyed me. Um, I get a plus. Because that's true. That's genuinely how I'm feeling. If you were to see me five minutes after the video, that's what you would see. So I'm always kind of trying to keep in myself in checks and balances. But if if I ever woke up and for whatever reason, I genuinely felt like I couldn't do it, I wouldn't do it. Like one day, two days, three days, four days. Because that's the other thing. We have to give ourselves permission to take the time. And I think because we're so worried about being forgotten, because we're so worried about, you know, missing out on the opportunity. And we can't, we always, you hear the phrases like, I can't afford to. I can't afford not to do that. You know, that's that's one of the key things, isn't it? I can't afford to not do this because if I don't do this, then this is, this is, this. But my thing is, we can't do nothing when we're dead. Hello. Right? So, like, we've got to take the time now and play the long game. Because when everybody else is, particularly in this, because when everybody else is given up because they're like, oh, you know, What's on television again? You know, and they've all gone back. Cause it's all happening now. Some of my white friends that were like, oh my God, I stand with you. Like they're bored. They, they jumped back. Listen, they lasted like a week. They haven't mentioned a dicky bear to me since. They, they, because their life doesn't change for them. Whether they can pick and choose to engage or not engage and their life is still good. You know, so for, I always say that for those of us that are still trying to influence in whatever way we're influencing, it's not, you know, whatever way, behind closed doors, front and centre, sideways, left, right. We've got to play the long game, which means we have to prioritise our mental wealth because it is wealth in this space. It is wealth. It is wealth. Having the right mindset, taking the time, decolonizing your mind is what's going to allow you to still be here when you're 70, 80, standing on the roof of a car going, do you know what, this, this, this cause is not right. That's what, that's what we need to do. Can't afford to be burning out. That's what I say to people. Like, we need everybody. Now is not the time for burnout. So take your breaks, whatever that needs to look like. Daily, weekly, monthly, whatever. Take your breaks. Take a break and protect your mental health. Mental wealth, actually. I really like that. And to finish off what's been a brilliant 
podcast, I'm just going to ask you a number of quick fire questions, starting with, what does leadership mean to you? Moral courage. Do you know what I mean? It means to, you know, put your head above the parapet and to say and do what nobody else is doing because fundamentally wrong is wrong and right is right. And that's why, you know, I always talk about leadership and I've talked to so many people about, I said, I'm not interested in what your job title is. Leadership is not a job title to me. It has no hierarchy. It has no, you know, it, it is about those who have moral courage to say this is not right. And I am willing to sacrifice something, whatever that something is, big or small, comfort to speak up. And that's why I think we're in a world where we need more leaders because we don't have that right now. We don't have leaders running businesses. We don't have leaders, you know, in the com- in the community, so to speak, in whatever community, not just black light, whatever. We don't have people that when they're tested are ready to go, this is not right. And even if nobody else is paying attention or even if nobody else agrees with them or whatever else it is, that they're, because it's safer to go with the crowd. We're human beings. We like to belong. We don't want to be different. That's so true. So what would you say your values are? What are your three key principles or values? Like integrity, do you know what I mean? So I've got to be able to do the right thing when nobody's looking. That's what that means for me. So I've got to do it regardless, not just because it, it's trendy, not just because it's look good, you know, knowing that it's okay to f*** up and say, you know, I'm wrong. That's a value for me. I like people who can take responsibility because I've got to take responsibility for myself. I don't always get it right. You know, so that's, and then my third, what's my third value is we just can't be bystanders. I don't like bystanders. I don't like being a bystander. I don't like seeing things that aren't right. I don't like people that have things to say, but don't want to do anything. That's a value for me. So if I see people saying and doing, I've got all the time in the world for them. But I do not have time for anybody that just talks a good game. That's one of my values. So I don't give them any time. So that's why I say, and I evaluate people when they go, oh, Shrink, can we have a chat? I go, yeah, sure. What are you doing? <laughs> not what you're thinking about, not what you're planning. What are you doing? And if you can give me an answer, like, cool, let's let's have a little, we'll parlay, we'll have a little chat. But until you get to the doing part, no, I'm not chatting. Because guess what? There's books, there's documentaries, there's podcasts for that. For people that just want to talk, listen and learn. I'm interested in doing action oriented. I guess the last question I'm going to ask you then is what would you want the Shireen Daniels legacy to be? The one who f***ed it up for the right reasons. (laughs) 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 I ain't even expanded on that. That's it, Shopee. That's all you're getting. She f***ed it up for the great... For the greater good, that's what I would like. That's what I would love people to say because it's it encompasses like the rebelliousness, the you know the moral courage to just go fuck and do it anyway. You know that's what I would like people to say. Like you know she made a difference in that way. Re- re- rewrote some rules about how we think we should do stuff. You know that's what I would like somebody to say. And I'm just gonna say that even before before all this happened. Um, you're already making plans to actually change stuff. You were, you wanted to create stuff. You wanted to get representation on this. So you're already working on this and bringing that change. And then on 31st, for the last 62 days, you've been bringing straight fire on every single platform that you have, you can, talking about it, living it, breathing it, bringing anyone you can along that journey. And it's been powerful. It's been eye-opening. It's been great to be able to alongside you on that journey. 
And we need more people like you to keep that fire burning because, like you said, we need to get that change. That change really needs to happen. And it's about actions, not just words. And you're definitely living it and you're putting the actions as and leaders need to emulate you and do that because if they had that same fire in their organizations, things would completely change. So, Oh my God, can you imagine? No, you're, thank you so much for saying that. And that's exactly it. Like if we had just, you know, listen, I'd be happy with like 10 people right about now coming with, you know, if we come in with that here, because I'm on the periphery, I don't want to go back into organisations, no matter how much they try and entice me in, because I'm like, I'll give everybody a headache for a start, but, you know, be here. But also, as you said, internally, um, and recognise that leadership is not about job title or seniority. So go and find people with leadership capabilities and make them your rock stars, because they will help you progress and elevate your business. I can't, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's just the perfect way to finish. It's all right, there we go. It's been a pleasure having you on, Shireen. Thank you very much. This is Everyday Leadership. I have show notes on my website, everydayleadership.buzzsprout.com. So check that out. And if you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you subscribe and tell someone else. Appreciate your support. I'll see you next time. This is Everyday Leadership.